I've always sort of been this my I've been subjective and the subjective is always blending with the object so when I approach a movie yeah I merge into the movie and I become part of it and a part of Nixon is me a part of Morrison is me a part of Jim Garrison is me but all through the years I, a lot of people have been confused and they say that's me you know I was a Vietnam veteran for who couldn't get Vietnam of his mind and I was a conspiracy theorist and I was a wild man in the doors and then natural born killers who knows what I was so people have been uh, a little bit confused and you know who is Oliver Stone frankly and yeah. it's something that I'm trying to find out he showed you conspiracy in JFK rebellion in the doors greed in Wall Street the agony of war in platoon and more agony of war in born on the 4th of July hi I'm Oliver Stone and this summer, I invite you to witness my latest creation. It's Oliver Stoneland! Welcome to the future site of Oliver Stoneland, my own amusement park. Let me be your host as I usher you through reality. My reality. A magical place where the objective is not to escape, but to confront. So, pl <laughs> Platoon was the first part of what kind of became an unintentional trilogy uh, for Oliver Stone because he made then, three years later he finally got to make his Ron Kovic movie Ron Kovic stopped chasing him down in the wheelchair <laughs> um, yelling at him that image and man. he made Born yeah. on the Fourth of July which for, which I have seen most of yeah which for quite a while was maybe my favorite Stone movie it is a great movie it is it, it carries so much emotional weight and maybe it might be the slightly stronger movie than Platoon only because even though for even though Charlie Sheen Platoon he has kind of an emotional arc, it's not that strong. He kind of starts out like, Oh god, Vietnam's terrible and then he leaves like, Oh god, Vietnam's terrible. <laughs> it's uh, just worse than I thought. Yeah, it's just even worse and I'm totally disillusioned now, as opposed to you know, I because in yeah. Platoon he what's well, interesting, both characters I mean the character in Platoon is based on Oliver Stone. He's this guy who, you know, I actually volunteered to go to Vietnam. And, you know, everybody's looking at him like, man, you're crazy. Yeah. You, you volunteered to do this? And Born on the Fourth is the same. Ron Kovic yeah. was a guy who basically got almost indoctrinated to yeah. go to Vietnam, stop the communists. But it's even worse in Born on the Fourth of July because you see him as that kid in high school. Yes. And you see that Marine recruiter come in and talk about it okay and he's got and you see just like tom cruise being his tom cruisiest handsome <laughs> it was handsome the last boy. it was the last time he could play a high schooler yeah, yeah. the, the last kind of symbolic in a way when you really think about but it but he actually but you know you if you want to hear you, know, you have a movie that's really a hero's journey story mm. and it's a hero's journey through like kind of the demythologizing of american yeah. Patriotism. You get the calling, which is the Marine. Yeah. Uh, Tom Berenger playing the guy. Yeah. yeah, and then he goes to Vietnam well, and takes, takes the first step. Yeah, and then he like, then he suddenly realizes, oh, we're doing some really bad things yeah. here. Also, and, my spine is broken. Well, his spine is broken, but then he also I can walk, man. But, I can walk. Yeah. But then he also shoots somebody who oh, yeah, was sorry. on his side, and he's told to basically not say a word about it and shut up. John Getz and plays do with this. Oh, really? oh, and it, oh, that's the guy who, like, the other like, sergeant? You will not say anything to the... That's John Guts. Yeah, that was uh, the fly. 
John Getz, was he also in Blood Simple? Yeah, Blood Simple. Having the affair with Francis McDormand. And the big brain on Romney. And Zodiac, too. <laughs> Zodiac? Really? He was, he was the, the chief editor. Huh. He's a he's an actor who I can blood simple. He's so great in that movie. Yeah, he has no but mustache. Then I, but then I always think about, yeah, because I, I always wonder, whatever happened to that guy? And F- he pops Fincher. up in Yeah, Fincher's still hiring him. He was in uh, Zodiac and I believe Girl Dragon Tattoo. Right on. So right, right, we'll, we'll get, get back, back to Born to the Fourth. What is what I think is really great about Born about on the Fourth of July is really you talk about this idea of the hero's journey and how we have uh, Ron Kovac going through this entire thing. It's it's a story of his life. How he goes, you know, he starts in high school and then all he, of his illusions are shattered and he has to put himself back together. Again. Yeah, and it's it's, it's it, you feel like a measure of success yes. at the end of that that he has reforged his life in a meaningful way. Yes. But meanwhile, the steps along the way have been uncompromisingly bleak. Yes. I What really strike, sticks out in my head are all those scenes in the hospital. Yes. You went out, man? Fine. We take that leg of yours, we get you out of here in two weeks. I want my leg. What? I want my leg. Why? You can't feel it no how? It's my leg. I want my leg, you understand? Can't you understand that? All I'm saying is I want to be treated like a human being. I fought for my country. I am a Vietnam veteran. I fought for my country. Fucking, I deserve to be treaded for, for, for decent, Vietnam, decent. Vietnam. I heard that right, you fuck. Vietnam don't mean nothing to me, man. Or any of these other people. You got it. You see, you can take your Vietnam and shove it up your ass. Go on, you Marvin. Go on. Go on, Jim. No, I think hey. I don't need this. Go on. Hey, you fuck. Hey. No. God damn it! I am a fucking Vietnam veteran. <laughs> He was in where, the Bronx VA, where every it was basically a slum, yeah. And he was treated really poorly, you know. Even you know what, and anybody would have been treated poorly right. in that place. Yeah, with with a blood filtering machine that basically looks like a broken coffee maker. Yeah, it's and you know, and he, and he, and he sh- came close to losing his leg, the leg that he couldn't move. No, but like he was like, but there's that great scene where he's like, I want my leg. Don't cut off my leg. It's my leg. It's me. Don't you understand that? Yeah. I want to be treated like a human And it's being. just heartbreaking. Yeah, and just... Tom Cruise really... Again, he, he transforms along with the character, where it's like he almost grows up on screen, hmm. which is kind of incredible, considering, you know, but you know, movie shoots, what, like three, four months, maybe? And, yeah. s- and some really heavy stuff, but you still, at the end... Have at the very end he he triumphs. Yeah, it's that triumph. It's it's the bleakness. It's a it's a bleak film which has a triumph at the end. I can't think of a film like that. Mm. Who do you think stands out in this movie, actor wise? I'm gonna say Will Will, Will Defoe. He gives like that. I kill more babies than you, man. You ever kill a little goop baby? You think you're better than anybody else? Also, I want to say the parents, the both uh, um, yes. who were both uh, in *You're the Dragon*, by the way. Raymond J. Barry played the partner. awesome character actor. He he has one of the most touching scenes in the movie, and it's a really quiet little moment. It's like Ron Kovic first comes home, yeah. and everybody's like congratulating him, like, "Wow, oh, it's great to see you, Ronnie." And Ronnie's just by himself in his room, and his dad comes over and just gives him like this little hug, and he's Sniff, like, "Sniffles." You know. He's he's good to see you, and and you know he's like the one guy who. 
he can't really he doesn't really have that much strength he's kind of like a weak father figure but he feels for his son right and really, the strong one is the mother. Is opposite. Well, here. the mother is the one who was really like pushing, hammering it. pushing him to be like, be your best, be number one. When he loses at the the wrestling match, she's she, you know we cut to the coach and we cut yeah. to her, and she's like, there are a lot of actors who pop up in other Stone movies. You have Frank Whaley, Frank Whaley, as uh, his friend. Say what again? Frank, yeah, Frank, yeah, that Frank Whaley, that Frank Whaley guy. He's also in JFK, uh, I think, playing the fake Oswald. Yes. Yes, and the Doors playing the drum, the guitar guy, of uh, uh, Robbie Krieger. Robbie Krieger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, we're gonna talk about the Doors in a little bit, and then, um, so he makes this movie, Born the Fourth, which he wins in, wins another Oscar for. All right, here's another, another one. one. <laughs> um, fine, here you go. Well, eight- this time, uh, Martin Scorsese is the guy giving him the Oscar that night. At the and, award, and yet best touch. picture goes to <laughs> Oliver Stone comes up to accept the Oscar. And he's like, "Oh, it's great to see you again." He's like, "Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Who are you? Why haven't you won one yet?" And he's like, "Oh, I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> you because at that time Scorsese hadn't won anything. Yeah. It's uh, and yet yeah. best picture is Driving Miss Daisy, I believe, right? Yeah, okay. which oh. like has anybody gone out of their way to watch Driving Miss Daisy in the past like twenty five years? I know, I will. <laughs> that will be your next That's cinema version. No, it will not. But uh, I'll make it a point to see it before the year is out. Okay. Yeah. All right. Who uh, knows? Maybe it's not as bad as people say it is. Well, it's not even about bad. It's like what what makes this stand out as the best picture of the year? It's in a year where you had like do the right thing and crimes and misdemeanors and movies that didn't even get. Both films that you put on the list last year for me. Yes, I did. We made lists of movies to watch. William Goldman, the writer, talks about um, how the Oscars are about class and being classy and very optimistic and lighthearted and and, tender. And, you know, Drive Miss Daisy fit the category. Yes. It's like when Rocky beat everything, Taxi Driver, All the President's Men, Network. Now, at least that I can kind of understand it because very Rocky is a, Rocky yeah. is a very good movie. Yeah. Driving this Daisy just looks like the most sappy Oscar bait. Ever. Yeah, exactly. Or when uh, you know, Shakespeare in Love won. Yeah. Now the other film though, so this trilogy though, the third film, Oliver Stone mm-hmm. follows us up then four years later with Heaven and Earth, which is a movie that he what I like about it is that he set up a challenge for himself as a filmmaker at a time when he didn't even have to. And he made a movie from the Vietnamese point of view. And from a woman. A hmm. young woman who grows up in this village. Uh, and I might be mispronouncing her name. I think her name is Lili Haslip. I could be mistaking that. My apologies, Miss Haslip, if you're listening. Um, but thanks for listening. And, um she grows up in this village. She's raised as a Buddhist. Um, you know, she's just basically living in a farm in this little village. But then she sees the tides of history change. First with the French in the 50s, which a lot of people forget about. The fact that, you know, Vietnam has been, you know, was, was kind of occupied for a while. And then they got the French out. But then there are other problems with uh, Ho Chi Minh, who came in and made things much more complicated. The fact that you had opposing sides of the communists and the anti-communists in the country and what's fascinating about the movie is that yeah when the americans come in they really screw things up uh but 
it also shows Vietnam as being an extremely complicated place where, you know, she, this woman got basically tortured and mistreated and basically raped, literally, by both sides. Uh, first she was captured by, like, the, well, I guess would be, well, almost the Vietnamese on the American side who kind of tortured her thinking that she was, like, an informant. And there's, like, really horrible, like, really gut-wrenching scenes where, like, she and a couple of other women are, like, tied up to, like, a, uh, like, a stake. And, like, ants are pour, like, they actually, they pour honey over her legs and let ants crawl up. Oh. And then, like, they pour, pour they, the snakes are, like, put down their dresses and stuff. And it's like, mm. oh, my God. And then, but then she returns to the village and everybody thinks, why'd you get out so quickly? Why? What happened to you? And then, yes, then the rape happens. And it's like the first half of this movie, it's just, oh, my God. It's this like Charlie Sheen came, showed up and said, man, things suck here. <laughs> Left. And this is the story of the people who cannot leave. <laughs> yes. Well, and not only that, also, it's like, not only are you doing it from the quote-unquote enemy's point of view, you're also doing your first movie from a woman's point of view, which Oliver Stone, he wasn't known for really having... He might have strong female characters here and there, but not generally speaking. Um, he's not known for them. He's not known for it. A lot of his protagonists are men, you know, really strong. Again, Conan, you know, the guy Stanley White in Year of the Dragon, uh, you know, Tony Montana... Um, whereas this woman, though, it shows, like, another side of him, uh, as an artist. The movie really picks up more so in the second half, where, like, to Tommy Lee Jones is this American officer who comes and kind of rescues her, you could say. Like, he genuine, he's, like, the first man to genuinely be interested in her. And, like, at first she's very suspicious, because she's also lived a lot of years as, like, a motherless, uh unmarried woman and like uh, Saigon and having to like do this or that to survive and at first she's like no no I don't, I don't talk to I'm not going to do an imitation of her I'm, I'm not going to be that tasteless yeah but it's good choice nice yeah um, but then it like the second half of the movie I think is even better than the first in the first movie it, like it's it is very depressing it's not something I would say oh go pop it on a Sunday afternoon but Tommy Lee Jones is so good in this movie because he, he ends up ha revealing that he's had, like, this hidden, dark chapter of his Vietnam experience. Where he's been, like, kind of like a part of, like, this uh, psyops, so to speak. Right. I don't know if you're familiar at all with that. Yeah. Um, I've read The Man Who stare who Menace, Who Stare at Goats. Yeah. Um, it's a little more, like, I don't know if it's quite that, like, surreal. Alright, definitely him. not that silly. But, but, I but it was, like, you know, doing really fucked up shit. Yeah. to people and he kind of buries that and tries to be his normal guy but then like he marries this woman and brings her back to the u.s and she kind of witnesses again her point of view him losing his mind and she can't do anything to and then he becomes tommy lee jones from under siege <laughs> yes actually like seeing this movie this came out the same year of the fugitive and seeing it i'm like wow I, I'm gonna pretend from now on you won the Oscar for this movie and not, and not the Fugitive. Fugitive. Well, the Fugitive's a good movie, but it's not like, oh, you must get an Oscar for this. Yeah, go, 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 man, down! <laughs> right <laughs> now, do you want that shot, Richard? Right off this dam! Damn, boom! <laughs> oh no, we don't come to any drop of water. 
It's like his rehearsal for two Small soldiers? Small soldiers, man. (laughs) Commandos! Oh my god, small soldiers. There you go. Man, I saw that movie in the theater. Doesn't Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, spoiler alert, for the ending of Heaven and Earth, doesn't he, you know, at the end of the movie? Well, nobody can see what action you're doing. But, uh, but so, so does he do the thing that I just did? Rami is yeah, you, you do the little, he does do the thing that you're, you're yeah, that he does. And, um, but uh, yeah, it's a good movie. I, again, is it as great as Platoon and Born the Fourth? I don't know. It's one of those yeah. rare minor ones that people don't get to see that many. It, it didn't make any money when it came out, and I can see why because it's not you because know, it's, it's, it's nuanced and complex. It's a very complicated picture about like because when you see you know Platoon and Born the Fourth, those are experiences that you know people Americans who were in Vietnam can really identify with, and they became big hits. You know, even if they, they were experiences that were portraying. America negatively in some respects, it was still like, here is the experience as a lot of people knew it. Whereas a movie about a Vietnamese woman, you know, living in that time period, it's going to have a smaller audience. Yeah, right. So, and it still has some of the effects. The one weak part for me, and I don't know if, if you remember much about this, he still, you know, this is him in between JFK and Natural Born Killers. Oh, he, right, em- yeah. he employs some of like, some moments where it's black and white flashback yeah and that actually didn't quite those are the weakest parts to me it felt like it's strongest when he's keeping it simple okay. that he's keeping it a little bit more like a straightforward like as much as a straightforward movie Oliver Stone can make okay but yeah so that's the Vietnam trilogy I so have we about. skipped JFK? We have. We'll get back to it. We're going to circle back to it. Can he become because, a Buddhist because of this movie? Yeah. But I want to just briefly bring up Talk Radio. Yes. Because this movie I also rewatched recently and is awesome. Barry Champlain. This is like one of those minor works that like, yeah. like a filmmaker or it's just somebody puts out. Like, you know, you think about something like After Hours, which we talked about when we did the Scorsese podcast. That's a movie that got overlooked for a lot of years because it was like, Oh, that's not De Niro and Scorsese. It's it's not it's about Italians. We, it's, 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 this, it's this weird little movie about no organized like, crime. And there's no organized crime. A guy just wants a bagel, a cream cheese bagel paperweight. I just want to go home, guys. Yeah, like, but it's almost kind of like that. It's this movie that a great artist kind of tosses off, and talk radio feels like that. It's like he keep in the book. He kind of. He doesn't downplay. He says like he likes the movie very much, but he almost says, "Well, I just made the movie as a rehearsal for Born the Fourth because like we were in Dallas, we need to oh, yeah, make sure right. we had a good crew and knew the place." But he kind of almost underrates it because talk radio is so vital and powerful, and it's most and like half the movie is just this talk show, like shock, almost like a shock jock. And right. certain points, he even has like the long Howard Stern hair. Um, Curly, yeah. Yeah. Oh and, no, when the flashback. Yeah, no, yeah, just in the flashbacks, and it's all about like he basically talks to these voices who are, you know, the equivalent of like YouTube commenters today. Oh, Barry, people, we all know you're just messing around with the southern, southern <laughs> Dallas. We all know you're well, just kidding. Well, they're also the people who send him rats in the and mail. Rats. And, the, and like death threats, and, and death call threat. him a dirty Jew, and do you think, all these. You think you're pretty smart, huh? You think you're pretty smart. You, you Jews think you're smart. You know you run the world. You know you run the. I know media. where you. I know where you live. Oh, wait, doesn't that make them smart? <laughs> <laughs> Don't undermine their argument, Andrew. They're racists. Yeah. 
Well, I think it was a stage play, right? Yeah, it was a play. I mean, he opened it up a little bit, but I don't think his opening up really harmed it that much. I actually tweeted that I thought that this almost was like Oliver Stone's Woody Allen movie. Yeah, <laughs> In a way. Can, with yeah. a more energetic camera. Because it's dealing with a guy who's neurotic and yeah. kind of paranoid and hates self-deprecating. Him, hates himself. Hates himself yeah. Has problematic relationships with women. And, you know, can be funny... But he can also, you know, push people away. Um, so, in a manner of speaking, as in his, in a way, I think he added the whole Alan Berg story. Um, a little bit, yeah. There was this DJ also in the '80s named Alan Berg, and he was an actual shot, like talk show guy, radio guy, yeah. who got killed by white supremacists because he was Jewish. And so, there's a little bit of that in. Yeah, because I don't think the, I don't think the well. play had that. I think that was added in by. So um, the play was just him just, talking. It's just him talking with with um, John uh, McKinley. Yes. One yeah. nice thing too, I also wanted to tell tell you, Andrew. In a way, this is also works a little bit like a prequel to Glengarry Glen Ross, because oh, yeah. Alan Alec Baldwin plays this guy's boss in the movie, and there are certain moments where I felt like he was about to threaten him with prizes for of steak knives. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, can you do Alec Baldwin impression or first prize <laughs> is a new Ferrari. Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize. Third place, you're fired. Put that coffee down. Third coffee's for closers. You think I'm fucking with you? I'm not fucking with you. Alright, that wasn't too good, but always be selling. Uh, closing. Closing. A B C Selling. A B S? I stick to Fine. my incorrect. Alright. Thing. So, talk radio is awesome. <laughs> anyway. I recommend all of you see it. 1991, also probably my my pick for his best year, because he does first The Doors, and then JFK. Oh, wow. All right. Now, with The Doors, just to mention that fast, I think this was before I even really knew who Oliver Stone was. There was this kind of, like, mystique around this movie when I was younger. Like, I think I finally saw it when I was in high school, I think. But, like, for I don't know about you guys, but, like, when I was younger, The Doors just loomed really largely as a band when i was probably around when i was however old i was around the time you were that old okay uh i don't know how old you are anyway <laughs> my sisters were into the doors okay and so when i uh i got exposed to the doors through them mm. i didn't become a fan until many years later when i was able to buy my own music and and do whatever yeah but uh they saw the doors probably when it came out on tape, and I. You just didn't get to see it. No, I didn't get You're to see it. You're probably a little too young. For I it? was probably too young. Okay, well, the I was door... probably too young to care about who the doors were at the time. Well, at some point, if you get if you can get if you get the chance to watch the doors, that is one of his movies that I think is just easily watchable. Uh, I don't know. Do you feel that way? I agree. I, I love the aesthetics of it. I love the visuals, the, the uh, you know, the bald Indian always showing up, you know. <laughs> the weird naked Indian. Garth! Something just happened to me. <laughs> There's a parody in Wayne's World 2 where they parody the Doors movie, yeah. where, like, Wayne, like, fall, like has dreams where a weird naked Indian shows up and takes him into a desert Which where Jim Morrison is just standing around. And, he, <laughs> and the whole plot actually starts because of Jim Morrison in a dream where he tells Wayne to 
throw put a on concert. A, put on a giant rock concert like Woodstock, only he'll call it Waynestock. <laughs> and he just, uh, and, then, and then at one point he just like asked Jim Morrison some like random questions, like. When will Garth's uh, um, when will Garth Sports, Sports Illustrated football phone come in the mail? And he's like, <laughs> Garth's phone is lost in the mail. It'll come very soon. Also with a VHS tape, the Stanley Cup, 100 years of war. By the way, all that. So comes- you know what it is. I actually saw. I saw that when I was a kid. Too, Long yeah. before I saw even knew what the Doors movie there was. You go. But, um... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Of all all things, Wayne's World 2 broke Andrew. What have I done? (laughs) I don't know. Why that's funny? (laughs) (laughs) It is. But, um... Alright. But the doors, um... What do you mean by like visuals, though? Because um, I read this Things great. You see, Jack. I, I read this great yes, analysis. That's what movies are. I read this great analysis of the Doors, talking about how Stone took a lot of visuals from the poetry of Jim Morrison and the lyrics of his, the music he wrote, obviously, right. like Moonlight Mile or Indians uh, scattered on dawn's highway which, bleeding, which begins the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, that's because that's like Jim Morrison claims, like when he was four years old, it was like I passed by some Indians and. They were literally scattered on the highway, bleeding from right. parts. I saw a snail crawling along the edge of a straight <laughs> razor. That's a peace frog, right? That's Indian scattered. Yeah, yeah peace yeah. frog. And also the movie, uh, or the, yes. the, the, the Jim Morrison solo album. I forgot. Yeah, the American Prayer. Which begins the movie of the Doors. It begins. Yeah, that's the framing device. It's the movie him, will begin like, in five minutes. You know, whatever. Yeah, because there's like, because. Um, the Doors, like after, years after Jim Morrison died, they put together this album called American Prayer. American Prayer, right. Which kind of, in a way, like, I guess you could say it's almost like a cynical cash grab, except that it's an album of Jim Morrison's poetry, yeah. but to original Doors music. In high school, that was like one of my cherished items. I listened to that like a hundred times. Yeah. I thought that was so great. It, it, uh, it brackets the movie. Like, yeah. Uh, it was like, it's so weird, it's almost hard for me to be objective about the movie. Except, I'm sure if I watched it today, maybe I would see it a little differently. But there was a time period where I was just like, I loved The Doors so much. They were probably my favorite band in high school, right. part of college. So seeing that movie, it was like, okay, I know that this movie showed me that Jim Morrison was a pretty big asshole. Yeah. But... He was also just a fascinating character because he was carrying that, for lack of a better, he actually called himself Dionysian influence. There you go, yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Dionysus, the god of uh, wine. Yeah, wine and debauchery right. and uh, having good sex. Uh, the Rome god uh, Bacchus also was kind of connected to that. Am I correct on that? Yeah. Hey! I learned something from this book. Um. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the yeah, poetry almost, and the lyrics... You know, it feels yeah. like a Fellini movie. In exactly. A it's almost like, uh, kind of going back to Eight and a Half, it's really in the mind of Jim Morrison, played out in the visuals. Here, I'll sell this to you, Andrew. All right, go ahead. Imagine the classic rock hippie version of Satyricon. Oh, I'm gotcha. sold. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's basically this movie. Yeah. Plus you get, like, you know, a lot of their famous incidents going on uh, the Ed Sullivan, Sullivan show, where they were told to change the lyrics to Light My Fire... And to instead of girl, we can't get much higher. To girl, we can't get much better. 
And the line what? that Jim Morrison suggested instead was, Girl, you can't bite my wire. Nah. <laughs> it rhymes, at least. Yeah, but no, they, he performed it as was on the Ed Sullivan show, and they were never allowed back. Aw, poor baby. But apparently yeah. Jim Morrison was a big fan of cinema, and he was a film school, right? He was, uh... Yeah, that's like how like he uh, like he was at UCLA at right. the same time Coppola was at school. That's right, yeah. They were actually students together. But he dropped I think out. I actually heard... I heard of it, I heard an interview with Jim Morrison. PBS has this YouTube series called Blank on Blank. Okay. And Jim, there was an interview with Jim Morrison, uh, talking about like his days at college and how he had this meal plan, yeah. where he'd basically eat all this cheap food and he'd always use it because he just felt obligated and he gained about thirty pounds. Huh. And, because, <laughs> and he he was just he talked about being huge and how I never heard this interview and how beautiful he felt because yeah. he said well, I know he about felt that. like he was a tank yeah. and <laughs> he, he says could that just, line in the movie he could just go What's the anywhere matter with being a large mammal and a like plane. a tank like a beast yeah yeah well he later late in his life he gained weight at times and he was like I don't care about being a sexy rock god I just want to be fat <laughs> and grew the beard yeah yeah according to stone I don't know if it's true or not it, after he broke up with the band, moved to Paris, uh, it was possible he may have tried out his hand of filmmaking again. I don't know, have you heard about this? No. That it was he about to he was gonna leave rock and roll, leave the band, and just do do movies. Sure, sure. And I, I see it. I mean, and that's why the movie is very almost like a trip. Almost almost like you're on drugs, almost. You know. Yeah, and then um, you know, so the doors comes out. It's that's kind of what we maybe could call a cult movie. Yeah. Even love, though it was meant movie. to be a big smash like it was like yeah. his most expensive movie it was over like 30 million dollars oh wow i didn't know that yeah well it looks it i that mean you has... have to imagine all those concerts the, the, those aren't the miami concert together. yeah oh god yeah it's like if you if you know anything about doors history it's a lot of fun is it the most accurate thing ever maybe not no i don't think so maybe ac- more accurate than some other we could talk a little bit about accuracy when we get on to the next film yeah well <laughs> what's the next film jack See, I can do a theme too. Nice. JFK. The JFK. Um, actually, score by John Williams. Huh. Yeah, he did the score for JFK and Born the Fourth of July. Awesome. Yeah, those are great scores. Um, so, JFK is a movie that I also. I, I really have a strong reaction to, and it is something I've rewatched many times. It's probably my top three. Like, top, top five. Maybe. Of movies ever? Uh, of his films. Oh, of his films. Oh, yeah. It's either two or three. It, it depends. It fluctuates. Pretty, mu- pretty much for me, even though I'm a big fan of Alexander, Oliver Stone and JFK are synonymous, basically. I can't think of when one without... When you say without synonymous... Them. I can't so. think of one without thinking of the other. Hmm. It's like they're... You know what's interesting why you like, connect those? Because it's something that Sites brings up in the book, um, that... Like, you know, because this, like, Alexander's all about, like, myth. Like, like what is this mythology of Alexander that we are looking at? Like, yeah. this man who, you know, had this great, like, life and had this, like, extraordinary kind of path to try to be, like, conquer the world. and But then fell into, you know, pro- you know was from the West, conquered the East. Sound familiar? Americanism. Um, but, uh... <laughs> But then there's also in JFK this idea of counter-myth. This thing of like, well, we have the official story. We know Oswald was alone. And who knows, maybe Oswald was alone. 
but he maybe was. the comedian over the grassy knoll. Well, yeah, right. Watchmen, guys. <laughs> Watchmen. Oh yeah. <laughs> I always kind of like the. Well, if, if it wasn't comedian, I feel like there was. Uh, oh, there, there's also another joke in this movie, Zoolander. Um, well, Zoolander, well, in Zoolander, like, there's this whole set piece where Ben Stiller is Zoolander, and he's, like, David Duchovny is this, like, conspiracy theorist who comes to Ben Stiller and tells him that a lot of the major, like, assassinations and plots were carried out by male models ah, because okay. they do what they're told. And they say, and, like, it comes to JFK and this girl with Zoolander's like, hold on. You're not going to tell me that Lee Harvey Oswald was a male model. No, but the people on the grassy knoll were. <laughs> I got to the shot of, like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Yeah. JFK is great, yeah. actually. But the thing that's great about JFK to me is that it puts out all this stuff, all of these ideas, all of these theories, all of these different information, all these pieces of information that... You know, you have to piece together, not like, you know, it's a real mystery story, but ultimately it doesn't lead to any real conclusion. It's kind of like Vietnam, a platoon, I mean, where uh, once again we lose, right? We, the story happens, just Maybe. like platoon, we, we lose at the end. Even though Garrison loses the case, but, you know, I mean, he walks away with his wife and his son, and yes. really, it's really up to us, the audience, to either make up our mind or get some sort of experience from this. Platoons, I think, like you said before... Well, it's also the style of JFK puts you on edge because that was where he really yeah. was first kind of explode, like really going forward with this whole idea of, okay, Layers. not only are we showing you one yeah. version of history, you know, yeah. we have our film shot in 35mm. Oh, Let's yeah. throw in black and white 16mm. Let's yeah. throw in 8mm stock. Let's throw in just weird time jumps yeah let's throw in like i was thinking about like the movie recently went like on a walk and i was just thinking about this whole set piece where garrison is interviewing uh clay shaw for the first time uh tom lee tom jones, jones yeah, with the white hair. and he's taught he's bringing up some things and he goes to like after that you had sex and there's just this image there's just like tommy jones just looking like <laughs> What? <laughs> and you hear like an elephant sound in the background or something. You're right, you're right. <laughs> it's yeah. like, <laughs> and Tommy Jones like that is absurd. I, <laughs> I know that sounds bizarre, but trust me, this happens in this one moment. I'm gonna go back and rewatch JFK just for that. Yeah, you're certainly right about basically the overload of information and not finding any answer at all. Okay. I. Because is that can, detriment you, to the movie? Do you you can criticize JFK for being in a way incoherent? Yes. Because Jim Garrison, as played by Kevin Costner, he's trying to un he's trying to uncover the truth about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and he keeps going into all this information about someone like silencing informants and and the the, whole, the entire logic of conspiracy theory. And then, you know, Donald Sutherland comes in in the middle of the film and says, okay, here's all the things I'm going to lay out. And he lays out a ton of information, which is yeah. fascinating. Yes. But, again, that doesn't lead to anything. Because it's like, oh, he was killed by a certain number of people over Vietnam? Which doesn't seem to make any sense. <laughs> How so? Why was Kennedy killed? Who profited of it? 
Who has the power to cover it up? Yeah. Who? I was yeah. Yeah. I love that. Three fingers. I, I which love I that. came and do. <laughs> I yeah. That. Well, I I just remember this is a side note. Um, and and it's like uh, he, he, oh. Donald Sutherland. He's talking about Sorry. like. Oh, this company makes a certain number of helicopters for the military, and this and these generals well, it's the are like the military-industrial complex. They, yeah. I don't think it's that hard to understand. And but and it's like Lyndon Johnson talking about, oh, you got to get Robert McNamara away from you know all these terrible places, so he can't tell the president. And serious things happen. I guess this is more of a general problem I have with conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's like. You want to keep making money, so you're going to kill one guy, and that's apparently going to solve all your problems. <laughs> so, really, when he presents all this stuff, he does. It's it's all this information which doesn't seem to implicate any one person, and it gets to be absurd hmm. to me. Like all this information comes out, and there is no answer. Well, but I, I think that like it still is about. But I'm not saying that that's bad. Okay. Because, basically, that is the truth about any Kennedy conspiracy theory that has ever been known Yeah, to well, man. that's because there are so many conspiracy theories out there. And they list other ones in the movie, you know, like the mob killed him. Yeah. For example. Or that there were, like, other death squads. Or even people we don't know about. Like, there's that well, one that's... little part where in the Mr. X monologue you're talking about, where he's talking about, hey, get some names together. Pros, maybe Cubans, Mafia higher. Nobody knows. Love part, of this, part of the scenery, right? Find out the defense budget since the war began. 75 going on 100 billion. Nearly 200 billion to be spent before it's over. In 1949, it was 10 billion. No war, no money. The organizing principle of any society, Mr. Garrison, is for war. The authority of the state over its people resides in its war powers. And Kennedy wanted to end the Cold War in his second term. He wanted to call off the moon race in favor of cooperation with the Soviets. He signed a treaty with the Soviets to ban nuclear testing. He refused to invade Cuba in 1962, and he set out to withdraw from Vietnam. But all of that ended on the 22nd of November, 1963. As early as 1961, they knew Kennedy was not going to go to war in Southeast Asia. Like Caesar, he is surrounded by enemies and something's underway. But it has no face. Yet everybody in the loop knows. Like I actually hear Oliver Stone a little bit in just that moment. <laughs> Part of the scenery, right? Like it's he all of those images that you're seeing, all these little cuts, it's like you're trying to be put into the mindset of somebody who would even think fast. to like prosecute somebody for the death of John F. Kennedy, you know, five or six years after Everything's already happened. And then it gets summed up in the scene after the verdict is delivered, where somebody is interviewing a, a, one of the jurors, mm. and he says, well, there probably was some conspiracy. We have no idea what Clay Shaw had to do with any of this. <laughs> Wait, does that come up in the end? Yeah, 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 he's right. Hope maybe that's in the director's cut. <laughs> maybe you're right. No, it's right. been a while since I've seen the director's cut, so I have to... Yeah, they, they, in the end, they believe there was a conspiracy, but Clay Shaw was not a part of it. That was the, You're right. Yeah, yeah, and in thinking about JFK now, I know it's been a while since I've seen it, but even I can't think of why the heck... Uh, what's his name? Clay Jim Shaw. Garrison oh. thought Clay Shaw had anything to do with the death of John F. Kennedy, or how... Even convicting him would have changed anything. Well, that, well, in a way, it's. I have to wonder how 
Oliver, I haven't gotten to this part in the book yet, but I have to wonder how Oliver Stone looks at Jim Garrison today, because he was somebody who was extremely derided, like, in, in real life. Jim Garrison, I mean. Yeah. As somebody who was, like, kind of a joke. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. But in Still a way, got him to be in the but film, But that though. said, the movie... But I think the movie wouldn't work, in a way, if it wasn't about this character. You know, it could be Jim Garrison, it could be anybody, but somebody who is kind of trying to find the truth and not getting anywhere which in its way maybe like that also uh not quite the same way but i feel like maybe it's like a cousin to a movie like zodiac which is a movie that's also about uh, obsession and uh, you know a murder that just can't be solved because all the pieces don't fit together well but that film does have a satisfying supposition at the end I mean, we can't, from the end of Zodiac, we can't say definitively that this one person was the Zodiac killer. But still, Jake Gyllenhaal makes a pretty convincing Good. argument yeah. for everything he's been researching. And then you could say, okay, maybe it was that guy. Yes. No, no, no. With JFK, yeah, it, the fact that Clay Shaw, he's not, like, he's a character who may be a little unsavory and a little suspicious and he maybe he even had multiple names which certainly also puts him in a peculiar position but and the be, fact that he was homosexual in a time when homosexuality was not tolerated well yeah i mean well i guess there was that but then there well that's interesting because that ties into how his wife also is like you're going after him because he's a homosexual and he's like no that's not why i'm attacking him but is it? I, I'm attacking him because I think he's part of a massive conspiracy to <laughs> kill the president. <laughs> but I still love JFK. I do too. I, I like it. I love it too. It, it's because it, of how it uses cinema. It creates its own cinematic language to try to present a topic which is, you know, like people may like people may want to immediately throw it to the wayside. Like, no, no, no. What what happened really happened. To me, it's like I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I I fucking hate those people who try to say like, oh, the 9/11, you know that that didn't happen the way it did. You know there are charges in the buildings. You don't know that right? Get me started. No, 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 no. Don't, I want to get you started either. But it's, but, <laughs> but there but, but we, there is like I love the line JFK like Newman says this uh, Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight. He Newman. says, oh, there's a lot of smoke here. There's smoke. There's fire. It's like. There is so much thrown at you in this movie that it almost makes it compulsory to watch it more than once mm. because you might have missed something. Which okay, I I don't I don't necessarily believe that Clay Shaw did this, but is it the official narrative too? I think uh, I find... again I I think it's it's probably likelier than not that Oswald was alone, but the movie does give you a little bit more doubt than you might have had going in even though you don't leave with any definitive answers you can, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no you go through ahead. cinematic language but right, go ahead right. Romney uh, two things cinematic language you were talking about I think he calls it vertical cutting is that what he calls it I think so vertical editing vertical cutting it's, yes. when, it's when we cut to another layer of reality and we are talking about layers before the, like you know, when, it's like if he's using the Zapruder film, right? And he's and he's taking actual footage from that, but then cutting to a reenactment of it's, that that right. he shot. I find that very fascinating too. How he yeah. restages all of these the little, yes, these yeah. little incidents inside it, that 
It's like if you took a picture of the Kennedy assassination, you can identify all the people, so then he just dresses up people to account for every person in that photograph and then just suits them from whatever angle he wants. Right. Yes. The opening montage does that, right? Uh, yeah. On uh, the Elm Street, I believe. Elm mm-hmm. Street plaza yeah where he uses the Sapruder film plus he'll make up his own he, yes he then goes to a 35 millimeter yeah. shot then maybe he'll even go to another eight millimeter yeah. shot like when he when jim garrison is describing how like the assassination went down in the courtroom yeah it's just like i love that scene what, what's kind of interesting if you almost think about the sort of thought process in that whole sequence it's almost like Jim Garrison has been having these thoughts, like, that have been kind of leaping around. Like, the movie almost tries to create, maybe, from Jim Garrison's point of view, a more stream-of-consciousness narrative. Right. Like, because the movie doesn't start off immediately like that. It starts out a little bit jumpy, but it builds a little bit more and more and more to when, when he's in the courtroom, it's like he's trying to put this into the jurors' minds and everybody in there. And, it, you know, that's when you get the back and to the left, back and to the left. Yeah. Which... And if you... And I really think that all the Kennedy's conspiracy theories are nonsense. <laughs> but I can but say... But it gets but you I into can the watch, mind of conspiracy. But I can watch this film and say, all right, let's pretend... Yes. <laughs> ...that there is some logic to this. The, the story is compelling. I think Stone calls it like a thriller, like a mystery detective thriller. Yeah, like maybe, like, even if you don't buy into any of it, it is a supremely entertaining movie. Just, like, look at that cast. Has any, like, so few casts have been put together. Tommy Lee Jones, Joe Pesci, and Kevin Bacon, I believe. It's the ultimate, it's also the ultimate (laughs) uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Oh, yeah, all in one room. Uh, (laughs) When they're having that orgy, Oh, nice. Yeah, Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Oh, my God. As a homosexual? Joe Pesci rules in this movie. Yeah. Da- is David Ferry fixing David his wig? Um, I'm sorry, David. I don't find your story... Uh, 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 believable. believable. Really? Really? Which part? <laughs> and uh, Donald Sutherland. Yeah. I remember... I have a small anecdote I wanted to say as a side note just before um, we move on. Uh, when I was in a film... I was in a screenwriting class in college, and... Uh, my professor just went off on a tangent one day about Black Ops. Black Ops. And then he decided to just, like, show us the monologue scene from JFK. Um, wait, wait. What class was this? Screenwriting. Okay. And he just went on, and, like, he, you know, I guess he was showing us how to do, like, a strong monologue or something like that. Or, like, a long scene where you hold the reader's attention. But, like, every time, like, Donald Sutherland said Black Ops, I just heard this guy be like, <laughs> Black Ops! What? <laughs> Black Ops, Mr. Garrison. Okay, Black Ops. Cool, I guess. Yeah. You play the game. Play play Black Ops. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but, yeah, JFK is awesome. It's a masterpiece. The first one was okay. So, yeah. <laughs> well, now you're making me think of the very first time Oliver Stone really made an impression on me as a kid, which was when I was wa- I watched The Critic, and they had a skit uh, where they you know one of their coming attractions was JFK Jr., with eight hours of ad footage. <laughs> and it's just him going back and to the left. Back and to the left. For like wow. a full minute. You could basically... That's like the line that, that typifies JFK. And it's complete and utter nonsense. Because a person shot in the head, their movement of their head does not correspond with the momentum of a bullet. Yeah. So oh, even man. that is nonsense to you. The yeah. bullet trajectory. I, and and again, 
JFK conspiracy theories are nonsense, but they're they're, they're nonsense. I they're not as much nonsense as like nine eleven or something. They're pretty nonsense. All right, well let's move to the one that you really are angry about, oh, which boy. is natural born killers. Natural born killers stole two hours of my life. <laughs> Had you ever seen this before? No. Okay, I'm interested. What be, what by, what's your thought on it, Romney? Again, the same with the doors, the same with JFK. Uh, aesthetically, is that a word? Aesthetically? Yeah. Aesthetic. That, that you're, you sound like a critic. Aesthetic wise, <laughs> I think he used every trick in the book. Well, this is him book. almost going into like overload. You could say. He's on eleven in this one movie. Let me talk a little bit Go about ahead. the way this film looks. Yeah, because this is this... for those of you who don't remember. This is lovers on the run. Go kill and kill lots and lots of people. Then they wind up in prison. Robert Downey Jr. is a TV show host, and he tries to get the big scoop. They become famous. That's pretty much that in a And Tarantino wrote it. Tarantino wrote the story, and Oliver Stone took it and chopped it up into a million pieces. Alright. This film is one of the most 90s-looking films I've ever seen. (laughs) And sounding. Well, I I didn't recognize that. Some of the soundtrack is Trent Reznor uh, behind it. Oh, Trent. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, But... Oh, man. <laughs> You're having, like, war flashbacks to Natural Born Killers, aren't you? I gotta say, the first half of Natural Born Killers really tested me. Hmm. I really... I, I didn't know what to expect, really. Except that the film was kind of controversial and, and it divided opinions. And then I saw why. The first yeah. half of this film has very strange visual choices. It, it very, very much, like... I think Oliver Stone wanted to make like the most expensive uh, experimental movie ever made. Well, I could certainly see that. It's like he used all the stock footage. Right. <laughs> all the stock footage and every camera ever made. Right. Yeah, what, and what bugged me most about this is the uh, is that sort of vertical cutting. Vertical cutting. Where he would be shooting a scene, and then he'd cut to a black and white view of the same characters, but not talking yeah. in a way that syncs up. It would and be I, their inner, inner personality, inner attitude. You know, they'd be yeah. talking to you normal, but inside they're thinking, they're laughing at you, or they're angry at you. Like like the diner scene in the beginning. The, yeah, the which is actually pretty close to Tarantino's original script. I haven't like, read that's, it. I, I have, I've read most of it. It... The thing about Tarantino's script is that it it actually is experimental in its plot structure, you know. Because okay. again, that was when that was what he was known for was messing around with chronology. The, chron- chronology. Um, but as far as like a lot of those, a lot of the visuals, they weren't there. It okay. was more straightforward, no. and it also it was it more so I think framed it around the the interview with Wayne Gale. Like it like the second scene of the movie after the diner scene is Wayne Gale oh, like okay. figuring like getting told like you're gonna do a story on this guy. That's how I thought it should have been. Ah Because I was thinking about this and I'm like the first half is really getting is really cr- I'll Crazy. get back I'll get back to the aesthetics in a minute because I have so much I want to say. <laughs> but Okay. Here's Lauren what Hill. I was thinking. I was watching the I saw the first half and then they get arrested. Mickey and Mallory, they're the main characters, yes. played by Woody, Woody Harrelson and Juliet Lewis. And, Juliet Lewis. and they spend the first half on their killing spree, and then they get arrested and they're in jail. The second half is where it really picked up. Because okay. 
it felt like it really felt like this was the place that the story was building up to. Mm. And as I, as the film was ending, I'm like, this should have been. We should have started somewhere around the prison, or we should have like had that diner scene, and then we got into the prison, and then we would go to flashbacks. Yeah. As this was whole thing was going on, and then we finally build up to that ending, which I didn't, which I kind of liked. <laughs> the the ending is really cracked out, but it's kind of entertaining. Do you know what it reminds me of? What? Cabin in the Woods. Do you mean the end of the movie? Or the, the, the final act okay. of this? Yeah, that's an Cabin interesting in the Woods? Um Yeah, the giant monster comes out at the end and kills... Well, all the well, monsters. Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, all the monsters get loose and... Yeah. Oh, yeah, the prison, they all get loose, yeah. And, huh, yeah, interesting point. Ar- but, but Arliss Howard rescues them, right? Yeah. 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 But as... Uh, uh, but And it got really fast. I, I started to like the film when the, that interview started. And I felt like this is the whole thing they're building up to. And this feels very Tarantino, where they've gathered all these characters in one place. And they've, they're building to this one moment where where like the focal points of this film are real... Are get their chance to speak and everybody is so invested yeah. and they have these plans around mm-hmm. it and it's like Inglorious Bastards where it's like we have them all in the movie theater we're gonna blow up the basket yeah that's what it felt like Maybe, but instead yeah, yeah. of doing that they separate it into two halves into a crappy first half and then a second half which was awesome <laughs> it's, a, it's a road movie becomes a prison movie yeah and Robert Downey Jr. I keep forgetting how awesome Robert Downey Jr. was. He is so good in this movie. Before he became Tony Stark. <laughs> well, he was, yeah, he was in so many movies. So. I know, but I keep forgetting about it. He was Chaplin. Which is, well, you know yeah, what? Chaplin, yeah. for God's sake. Chaplin, uh, Wonder Boys, uh, frickin' uh, Kiss Kiss Zero. Bang Bang. Yeah, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Lesson Zero. Um, Weird Science? <laughs> well, I'll take your word for it. Sure, back to school. <laughs> you haven't seen Weird Science? No, I've not. I haven't. Really? Sorry. I recommend it. It's a John Hughes movie. Okay. I thought you'd like it. All right, but um, I I think you make an interesting point. I I think you're right. Now when I think about it, because it's been a long time since I've seen the movie. I think when I saw it, it's probably back in college. I, I probably have seen it a couple of times. The first half does. It's a little too overloaded with like mumbo jumbo imagery. Yeah. And it made me want to just watch Badlands instead. <laughs> oh yeah, Badlands. I'm yeah, right. Yeah. Badlands, well, it, Bonnie and Clyde. It, has it a, obviously takes a lot from Badlands. True Romance, also. which also yeah, tr- obviously Tarantino's a big fan of Badlands. And what those films had that Natural Born Killers does not are two likable protagonists. Yeah. Well, that's funny. You know what's one of the crazy things? Reading the interview with Stone in this book. He keeps trying to go back. His defense is like, they're hey, they're lovers. They're in love. They're in love. Is that enough? No, I it's don't not think enough. So. <laughs> you almost could have had it. You almost could have made it because Mallory comes from an abusive home. Yes, which is one of the. All right. God, Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield is incredible as someone <laughs> who is pure scum. Yes. I love Rodney the, Dangerfield. I love the sitcom oh, yeah. angle that did. Oh yeah, he is now, incredible. In the here's movie. why I got to diverge from you. I hate that the little sitcom thing. I do because the a lot it of it is the, tacky. Because a lot of the world is very cartoonish 
while Mickey and Mallory and their crimes feel very real. Yeah. And it creates this very sick contrast that really left a bad taste in my mouth. Well, it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Like, Seitz brings up this interesting point, which I wanted to posit with you guys, because he brings up this whole idea of the audience surrogate. Okay. Which, I think you might already know what that means, but then, like, Stone was brought this concept, and he was like, what, what do you mean? And Seitz tried to explain, like, well, it's, you know, the point of view of, like, you know, maybe, like, somebody, the average person seeing themselves in the movie. And Stone was like, I, I don't know what the average person thinks. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that shows in this movie. Like, he, he, like, there is nobody in this movie that you can really invest yourselves in. And that is my problem with it. That's why I think it's a very visually creative movie. And it really, when it, especially when it gets to the prison, the satire really picks up. No, you're right, yeah. But it's but it kind of stops short of being one of my favorite Stone movies because it is just so all over the place. It really is like... I haven't had acid, but it kind of makes me think I have had acid, and I'm not sure if I ever want to. Uh, but everything is, every shot is so busy, and not in a good way. There are You have Woody Harrelson on a television trying to make love to to his girlfriend, while TV clips are playing on a green screen behind him, and we're oh, at yeah. a Dutch angle, and things are neon. And I'm like, for God's sake, <laughs> just give me a hotel room that I can recognize as normal. Yeah. And... Just give me a setting that looks like a real place yeah. instead of being... Ugh. Here's right. the difference between why, what the Tarantino <laughs> film would have been like and not Oliver Stone. Don't, don't explode, Andrew. Okay. Um, Relax, Andrew. Calm down. Now, right. even though, technically speaking, you could say that both Oliver Stone and Tarantino are baby boomers, they're at opposite ends of that timeline. Okay. Oliver Stone was born in 1946. Tarantino was born in 1963, which is like the very tail end, I guess, of Baby Boomer. Yeah. Maybe on the verge of Gen X, but not quite. Among Baby Boomers, Tarantino is a baby. Yes, he's the baby of the Baby Boomers. And the big difference, I think, is the effect of television. Because clearly, you know, they had different experiences. I'm sure that maybe... Maybe Oliver Stone grew up with TV, but it was a very different TV. Oliver Stone would have grown up in a time when television was brand new. Either he maybe didn't he even have, have a TV, or he could have. He only had like two or three channels. Yeah, and he could have grown up in the. He would have been older than television. He would have been old enough to remember grow a time with it. when there wasn't television. Yeah, then. or whereas Tarantino grew up with TV. Yeah, and he grew up with like a lot of TV and a lot of cable. And probably saw it in a different way. So Stone's attitude in this movie is, man, TV's just ruined everything. I'm going to expose it. It does feel a little bit like it's styled, it's MTV styled. It Well, it's <laughs> o overloading MTV style. Like, I respect, actually, I mean, I do respect what Stone is trying to do as far as I want to kind of, like, try to show that, you know, Mickey and Mallory are these two people in love. They may be killers, but they're they're kind of pure in even though even their total abhorrent criminality, but everybody else in the movie may be so much worse. It's like that quasi Clockwork Orange yeah. type of thing. What do you we, think, Romney? No, you're right. Uh, it's like we don't know. Oh, going by the Clockwork Orange, we don't know why Alex does what he does. But everybody around him, his parents, the guard, the doctor, uh, the the police, are all worse than him. They are very corrupt. And natural born killers. 
Uh, do we ever get a, a scene of why Mickey is bad? Or no, just, I just the way I it think, is. Well, we do have flashbacks to a time when his father c- kills himself or oh, yeah. some possible I'm, sexual abuse. The, the but head, it's yeah. but it's never really it's it's not as deep of, of a look into his life as it is into Mallory's. Right. I'm tempted to. I want to revisit now the Tarantino script. Now you're talking about because I'm tempted to almost think that maybe. Tarantino didn't even bother to explain why Mickey and Mallory are bad. I could have seen an interpretation where it's Mickey and Mallory, where they kill her family to escape. Most of their family, anyway. Yeah. Uh, And then they're just on the road, and maybe they don't know what to do, but, you know, they're trying to make it on their own. And then the cops catch up with them, and and they decide not to surrender. And it's like they're kind of forced into a position where they have to defend themselves. I can, yeah. And then, but but then it becomes something much bigger, and they just start killing. And eventually, they morph into those people for whom killing is a way of life. Yeah. And driven by the media mm-hmm. and this sense of celebrity that they didn't even search for. Yeah. But it seems like the minute they leave that house, it's just everybody is fair game. And yeah. it just makes them so unidentifiable that I can't... No, you're right. Yeah. I can't feel any sympathy for them. Yeah. And I certainly don't like it at the end. Mm. Not even when they change at the end, because by the time he shaves his head off, his hair off, and he's bald, and he's become... He's progressed into this, like, higher being... Not not higher being, but higher consciousness, as Oliver Stone would say. Um, like, he doesn't want to kill you anymore. Know what point, yeah. You know what moment feels like a Tarantino thing? And I guess spoilers. It's when they... When they, you know they have Wayne Gale with them, and they say, "Well, we're gonna kill you now," <laughs> and Wayne Gale kind of freaks out, but then they still kill him. That yeah. almost felt like, in a weird way, Inglorious Bastards might be Tarantino's quasi remake of Natural Born Killers. Yeah, it's like when they uh, when you talk about the, like the eggs they... in the basket, and then at the end of Inglorious Bastards, when they have that scene with Hans Landa. Yeah, you're gonna take that uniform off. Yeah, it's like that. It's like they, he was redoing the scene with Wayne Gale, and it's kind of ironic because Tarantino has said in interviews that he actually thought Natural Born Killers was the weakest of the scripts he wrote during this period. Mm. Which and yet and yet he want and yet he was really mad that he like he went to the press and really bitched and moaned about like the fact that like he didn't want these producers. This guy Don Simpson, who he really hated to <laughs> to give the script to Oliver Stone. It was Don Simpson who did that? Yeah, who produced it. Oh, and wow. And I think there was even, like, this kind of legendary story where Tarantino went into some restaurant where Don Simpson was, and he, like, like punched him or something. Oh, wow. This is uh, back when he was, like, young and angry and full of But he wrote, whatever. didn't he, uh, ghost wrote Crimson Tide for Don he, Simpson? He, he, he... And The Rock? Well, no, not The Rock. I think he added a few lines in The Crimson The, Tide. Sil- the Silver Surfer. Speech. Yeah, Silver Surfer, and he added like a bit of Star Trek, and also in the Rock, the the shootout, the Mexican shootout, and also the. Sort of... I didn't know about the Rock. That that would be news to me, man. If, oh, okay. If Tarantino ghost wrote a Michael Bay movie, well, they're really they're, they're good friends, you know. They're, they're... No, don't don't tell me that. I, okay, uh, Tarantino, Michael man, Bay, can I, man, can they're, I they're cool. I thought you guys knew this. Yeah, apparently he he was a script doctor on the Rock. And you can you can feel you can see it in the movie where huh. uh, Nicholas Cage is a Beatles fan and he goes all nerdy with the pop culture references. There's a Mexican shootout in the prison with the Navy SEALs. Mexican stand. I never heard about what this did I say? with the Mexican Rock. Mexican shootout. 
Oh, well, wow. close. And of course, it's a wrench through the heart when the green ball... Oh, yeah. Are you sure it's not somebody just ripping off Tarantino? You may be right. <laughs> and I may be wrong, as Billy Joel would say. But uh, I see I see the way you're going for it. It does have... Uh, Tarantino-ish. It, 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 yeah. It, it, but it at the same time, close. he did influence a lot of other writers and directors. So There are a lot of people ripping what, off. Yeah, what so. young filmmaker has not ripped off I mean, Tarantino? You're right. So, so I may be wrong and you may be yeah. right. But that's what I heard. Uh, don't quote okay. me on that, people. All right, but no, no, you make an interesting. Don't quote point. me on it, people who are listening but, to a. <laughs> but here's podcast. here's the one last here's the one last thing I want to put on this that I find fascinating is that this whole thing with Tarantino being upset with Stone changing his vision, you know, and Stone going all hogwild like I don't care, it's now my vision of natural born killers. I'm gonna rewrite it and make it this super crazy. I'll have five thousand edits in my movie and use every known film stock and. Robert Richardson is going to get a black eye in That's the prison right, yeah. sequence, and but he's going to just cut his eye open so he can keep shooting. He literally did that. In the 80s, though, that was, like, he was in Tarantino's position. You think about it, because yeah. he had directors who were kind of taking his scripts and screwing them over. Mm. So We've come had, full circle here. He had yes. come full circle in, like, the power dynamic, where, like, yeah, Stone starts at the bottom and works his way to the top and is now, like... You know. He talks about how Richardson didn't want to do Natural Born Killers. Yeah, he talked about that too. Like he actually thought like the the, the script was evil. Yeah, he didn't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Which there might be something to do that. There's a lot of like crazy shit in that movie. There is like the, all anything with Native Americans. Yeah, yeah. That whole scene. Too much TV on the. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, the the problem in the first half. I think the reason why you were so like disgusted, Andrew. Like even though I liked the movie like overall. It has, like, a nasty vibe to it at times. Like, it's really obvious in its messages. Yeah. Like, It's heavy-handed. Even for Oliver Stone, it's heavy-handed. Yeah. And we'll get to some heavy-handed stuff in, like, the last portion of this, because I know we can't, you know... We're now at the tail end of his super peak period of the 90s. He does Nixon. Nixon! Here we go. Nixon is my favorite Oliver Stone movie. I agree. Can we... <laughs> we're shaking hands. Handshake. Handshake. I, I think Nixon is. He took everything from JFK and even a little bit of Natural Born Killers. Yeah. And he made, like, the ultimate movie about a president. I love Nixon with a capital I, I've well, watched well, it. I love your trope. It's even better than Lincoln? Uh, Spielberg's Lincoln? Any Lincoln. Um, a Lincoln letter? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, it's hard <laughs> better to Better than JFK. <laughs> Yes, JFK is about president. Yeah. I would watch sort of Nixon over JFK, I think. I don't it's know, better well. than that crappy horror movie about the guy who wears the Reagan mask. <laughs> oh, uh, You mean Point Blank? Point, Point, Point Break? Point Break. No, no, the the one with Paul Rubens about the hippies who are what? doing... All right, hold on. <laughs> the, no, this exists. <laughs> Paul Rubens? <laughs> Paul right. Rubens? Paul Rubens has a part in it, a okay. small part. Okay, there are these hippies who are, not hippies, but they're like these young people who are just going out in the woods for like a, a rave or something and they have ecstasy. But meanwhile, they're all being stalked oh! by a serial oh, oh, killer. Oh, the tripper. Yes. No, wears... that's, that's David Arquette. Oh, I never saw this. 
So that's is, him in a Reagan mask. Okay, yeah. now I know what you're talking about. Paul Rubens. Paul he has a part in it. He plays like a drug really? dealer or camp. I don't wow. Know. Wow. It took me a second. I, to I get don't that. blame you for not knowing I, it. We we watched this years uh, ago, back when Jack had his old house. Yes. And, wow. Uh, it's, that that was a he directed that movie. David Arquette. All right. I'm going to look it but up Nixon, But Nixon is better than that. Yeah, yeah. well, Nick, the funny thing with Nixon is uh, that was the first time I I really knew who Oliver Stone was, and it was an odd moment, like, because I went to this movie theater with my family, uh, and it was like a two-screen theater. It was like in 1995, and wow. they were playing Father of the Bride Part Two with nice. Steve Martin and Nixon. And I kind of was, and I was at the theater, and we were, all, we, of course, we were going to go see Father of Bride Part Two because I was like a kid, you know, or whatever. But I saw the poster for Nixon, and I saw like Anthony Hopkins' face. And I'm like, I want to go see this movie. This looks kind of, I don't know, who's this Nixon guy? And yeah, and then as soon as it came out on video, I watched it. Like, and I was probably way too young for it, but it just blew my mind. The and that, like, the fact that this guy I, I might have heard a little bit about in school history is like one of the most e- like dastardly leaders of like any like nation ever hmm. can you imagine what could happen if this man was just loved <laughs> kissinger by the way yeah <laughs> now my favorite line comes from ed harris uh he is a darkness yeah uh, you know sooner or later you're gonna realize that nixon is the darkness that eats the darkness is that the one um, uh, he is a darkness, reaching out for the darkness. And it's either you or him. Yeah. And it's like, oh, man. It, 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 I mean, it tells his life story, it jumps around in time a little bit, but it also... Yeah, it's it, kind, of, kind of like the Doors. It makes yeah. you, yeah, well, it also, yeah, it, a little bit of the Doors, a little bit of JFK and some of the visual approaches. Right. It begins at the end and then goes back. Yeah, it, it's... And yet, it's like you don't hate the man watching it. Right. It's like you understand him. He's like a. Uh, uh, he's almost like Daniel Plainview, and there will be he's blood. He's like Richard the Third. Oh, you're right. Yeah, Richard the uh, Third, Citizen Kane, obviously. Yeah, Citizen Kane is definitely a big influence on this um, movie for sure. Like, there's even a sequence where they show, like, because he resigns as governor in, well, he doesn't, I don't know if he resigns, he, but he, he loses. In 1962, yeah, he gives a speech, that's the one where he said, you won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah. And they actually repeat him saying kick around anymore, for effect. <laughs> and then when he gets off stage, they Endless have... Endless possibilities yeah, for renewal! Yeah. <laughs> but then, no, but they show, like, a newsreel of, like, history about Richard Nixon in 1962, about all of his accomplishments. The March and of that's Time. Like, yeah. And that's, like, a Citizen Kane type of thing, and... News on the March! Yeah, basically yeah. news on the March for Richard Nixon. Well, they call it March of the Time. Yeah, yeah. Basically the same thing. And here we have Richard Nixon, uh, um... Finding a film reel in a pumpkin patch. Yeah. Why, she's pink right down to her underwear! And then he lost to President Kennedy in 1960. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. and yet, then there's all this other stuff that happens, like, the rest of his political career and damn anthony hopkins is so good in the movie he's really good i, I was gonna be warren Beatty apparently and he what dropped out yeah really? warren Beatty dropped out and then warren they got Beatty. like is kind of he had there should be a movie about all the movies he didn't do yeah like kill bill kill bill yeah i'll get shorty yeah he was gonna be chili palmer oh i didn't know that it's gonna be a documentary called starring warren Beatty. <laughs> starring warren Beatty, not Almost star, almost starring Warren. Yeah, almost starring Warren Beatty. Uh, also, another great cast. You have Joan Allen, 
James Woods. One of the things that, like, as a young person seeing this movie, Bob Hoskins as J. Edgar Hoover, Hoover. <laughs> he gets to have, like, a gay moment. Nice. And I was like, that's Bob Hoskins? Mario? Mario? Uh, Eddie from Who Framed Roger Rabbit? No way! Um, yeah, like, just uh, top-shelf cast. Ed Harris. Um, all, the, all the President's Men are played by famous... Uh, J.T. Walsh, I believe, is Ehrlichman, I believe. Yeah. No, no, no. James Woods is Ehrlichman. Oh, no, no. Is he Haldeman? He's Haldeman. All right, all right. Thanks, yeah. Haldeman. Yeah. You have yeah. uh, David Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce. As, uh, have, John uh, Dean, I believe. Yeah. Like... Oh, so many people. Kevin Dunn is uh, Charles Coulson. Okay. And uh, Ron Ron. Uh, oh oh. David and, uh, Paymer. Paul Sorvino is Paul Kissinger. Kissinger. Oh man. Mr. Some President, I must tell you, you know. In this like... issue, it, sometimes, <laughs> Mr. President, you go too far. Ha 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 ha! We really messed with Kissinger, didn't we? <laughs> as a, as a student of history, I advise you to see this movie. Thank you. All right. Uh, you turn. I haven't seen that movie in so long, I almost don't have words for it. Except All right, that next. It is a crazy movie. It's a crazy movie. Great cast, a large ensemble, and I think there's a cameo by Tom Lee That Jones. was basically Oliver Stone going, I don't want to do anything political, I just want to do a weird like just have movie fun. about a guy going into a town. Last movie with Robert Richardson, too. Yes. They had a last... divorce, so mm-hmm. to speak. I don't know why, though. But I, I think Willoughby was... probably was sick of him. He was probably an asshole to work with. Would wow. you want to work with Oliver Stone? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> what are your options right now? Um, any given Sunday, one of the only times I gave a shit about football. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Again, great cast. He gets oh. really great cast for movies. He, uh, working with Pacino. Oh, I'm back. Yeah. Like, for the last time. He wants to, if you want a great like locker room speech, he gives that. Like Again, yeah. it's like, and also uh, James Woods again. Jamie Foxx, that was probably the first time I realized that Jamie Foxx is a terrific actor. Yeah. He plays, like, a quarterback who kind of gets his shot when, like, Dennis Quaid, like, gets injured. And, uh... Cameron Diaz is the owner, I believe? Yes. Cameron Diaz, you have, uh... God, like, I had real football people in it, too. Jim Brown. L. Cool J. (laughs) For some reason, it's in this movie. His head is like a shark's fin. Um... Um, uh, but yeah, that was his last film of the 90s. Yeah, that. that was probably the, like, I don't know if I'd call it a fully great movie, but it's probably the last time, my first Oliver Stone movie in a theater, too, where he really, like, knocked my socks off. Like, as far as, like, well, until maybe the next movie we get to. Which was? I, I can't do the score for it. It's Alexander. Okay. Yes. You can't do the score. Can you do the score for Alexander? No, I can't. It's really. a very. Trumpets? Well, it's a van. A, a, a lot of drums. Oh, a really? lot of synth. Okay. A lot of... Uh, well, it's Vangelis. Oh, really? It was him? Yeah. Yes. It, was, it was probably the last time I can remember a Vangelis score. That was notable. Wow. And, I, I mean, I always think of Vangelis. I think of Blade Runner, and then I remember... Oh, yeah, he did... Uh, Chariots of Fire. Dun, well, Chariots dun, of Fire. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, I know you have a lot to say about this, Andrew. And Boy, I know it's not the I. first. It's not the first time we've talked about this movie. No, it you certainly has not. I mean, Alexander... Alexander didn't even hit me in, you know, in my heart the first time I saw it. I saw the director's cut first. That's the shorter one. Yes. Right? Uh, again, we should emphasize that this guy has 
made Ridley Scott look like a chump when it comes to director's cuts. Yes, but with instead of confusing people more, he's actually made the movie better mm. with each director's cut. This is the this is what I say is the only director's cut that has actually improved a movie. Because when Alexander first came out in theaters, it became it was very confusing. And I think it's because the producers didn't really believe in audiences' abilities to really engage with the film or understand history. Yeah. Because they didn't. Because a lot of like the test audience, they saw this film and they didn't understand that BC years work backwards. <laughs> yes. And they didn't understand that time skips happened. Yeah. And they. <laughs> And so they had to recut it so it was more chronological, and that it w and they had to say instead of oh it's happened from 65 BC to 70 BC, actually that's not the, that's backwards. <laughs> there are four versions of this damn movie. Yeah, it, and and two it, cuts are more linear. The third and fourth not so much. Yes, it's this life of Alexander the Great, that Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as opposed to Alexander the... Okay. Pretty good. Yeah. Alexander the fairly decent. Right. But as I, as I went on, I really came back to this film, and they would show it a lot of times on cable. And every time it was on, I would just watch it again. Hmm. And, I was, and I was really like, man, there's something to this thing. And then I saw Alexander Revisited, the third cut. Yes. And I'm like, oh, this is what it was supposed well, to be like. the thing about the two... I've seen the first cut, the theatrical one, and then I saw the Revisited version. Yeah. What, what makes a difference is that you have... In that first cut, it felt... It, I guess they tried to make it a little bit more linear, but in the process... You have to wait until you get to that big first battle scene. Yes. You know, where he, in the trailer, he said, Conquer your fear, and I promise you will conquer death. Yeah. And, you know, then you have this really terrific battle sequence. Uh, are they, is he facing off against the Persians? Yes, the yes, Persians. That's right. Um, there are only two big battles in this movie. But, but the thing is, though, that first battle... By moving it up in the timeline and revisited, like that first battle, I feel like happens in maybe the first half hour in the yes. revisited cut. It really improves the flow of the film. And again, it's a Citizen Kane thing because this is the life of Alexander. It starts with his death. Yes, it, it, he's in he, he's in Babylon. He's you know, gone through all of his life. He's drunken himself to death. And everyone's gathered around him knowing he's going to die. And then, just as he dies, we go back to perhaps his greatest moment of triumph. I forget, in the revisited cut, was uh, Ptolemy, is that how you pronounce his name? Ptolemy. Was he also framing the story, like yes. in the theatrical cut? I feel like that's a very important choice, just in general, that the fact that it's his version of events. Yeah. And the fact that he's building that up that myth that people will remember like forever. And Anthony Hopkins is back as Ptolemy. Yes. Kind of, at first, like I think when I was first watching the movie, it felt like this guy's just wandering around the set saying lines. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander was the greatest man ever. He was great. He was the greatest man who ever lived. And Pretty awesome. Yeah. Now let's tell me his story. Now in the revisited yeah. cut, yeah. Better, better pacing, even though I think Revisit is longer. Yes. By at least maybe like 
good 20 minutes, maybe even half hour. It was like the, the theatrical version came out and it was all done chronologically. And it was longer. Then Oliver Stone did the director's cut and it was shorter, but they got and they mixed up the top, the the events so that it would make a little more sense as a narrative. Yeah. Revisited brought back a lot of the footage that wasn't in either cut. And it just made it much longer. And it actually feels like an old epic from the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And even with all of the, you know, violence and sex and all this stuff. Well, I love, too, like, I remember when, when I first saw this movie, there was a little bit of, you know, anti, you know, negative buzz against it. Not unlike many other Oliver Stone movies. Yeah. And part of that was this whole thing of, I, you made this action hero gay? Are you crazy? We, we don't want to go see a gay guy. Most of the probably, but from a people, lot of people who had no South. idea who Alexander the Great was. Yes. Well, <laughs> the, well, the thing was, you also had this time, the context of like this, you know, people didn't really have any of the history of Alexander. It was just, well, we've seen Gladiator. We've seen Troy. We want another one of these. Here we go. And it's not that. No. It's And, and the, the thing is, too... It's not like you can say patently, oh, Alexander was gay, Alexander was straight. It was just like, you know, he might have been curious in other, in in the other, in his own sex. Well, but in the Revisited, se- the they se- make, make it clear, yeah, he's super interested. <laughs> he's super interested, but the sex scene that they have in the movie, in the theatrical cut as well as it's with Rosario Dawson. Yeah. And it's hot. Yeah. Like, it's not just like, oh, they made love. No, they're fucking... <laughs> <laughs> it's like a vicious oh, yeah. sex scene. It's like she's angry. She's like a like a tigress or something. Yeah, let's for lack of a better term. It's interesting you mentioned the context because you know at this time, uh, what was it? Troy came out. Gladiator had come out, and I think you know I don't like those films a lot. Yeah, I think. What really sets this film apart that makes it notable is that Al- that Al- Oliver Stone seems to have a vision of Alexander as a person yeah. that's concrete. He's not mm-hmm. wishy-washy about Alexander. He doesn't try to whitewash him, no. or he doesn't if try any- to idealize him, or yeah. he doesn't, and he doesn't try to just make him cater to modern sensibilities. But he has this vision of who he is, and he sticks to it, even if that vision is incorrect. I mean, it's like JFK. The stuff in JFK is pro- is not accurate, but you, he sticks to the narrative, and that, and you go along for the ride because that's the nature of the film. What I like is one little moment too in the interviews about Alexander. You know, he Sites brings up like you worked with Val Kilmer again here for the first time since The Doors, and Oliver Stone says, "What a fitting sequel." Yes. <laughs> You're right, yeah. Because in a sense, like, well, I think Oliver Stone is... And there are also other callbacks to other movies. He, Like, at one point, I think maybe his mother or another character tells Alexander, the world is yours, yeah. which is what Scarface sees on, like, a blimp going by in the yeah. scene. And you have a character who's he's trying to look at another person who might have been... Would you say maybe Alexander in this movie is a little bit Dionysian? Yes. Yeah. Well, especially towards the end, because, you know, his life takes all these turns, and basically by this point, his dream is gone, and basically he drinks himself to death. Yeah, and it also, again, it's like, it it, it feels like a true Oliver Stone movie, and also the sense, that, as I mentioned earlier, it's like, 
you have this tale of uh, imperialism, uh, Western imperialism, trying to go across the world, but then when they got to the East, you know, you can't quite understand the East if you haven't really come from there, and it kind of swallows you up. Right. And then you get the war elephants. But it doesn't look too much like an Oliver Stone film. Um, in what way? Like, uh, with all, of like, the, what I, like the, what the vertical cutting is? Yeah, I mean, you think about JFK and, like, these sort of, vi- these montages, Natural Born Killers, if you really want to think about the way that film <laughs> looks. Mm. And it fe- it doesn't feel like Stone is going out of his way to be as flashy with his visuals. It feels more like something more traditional, even if he's doing the things that he that he usually does. Do you yeah. agree? No, I, I think in, in a way... Do you agree? It is. No! Yeah. Well, maybe it goes back a little bit more to the style he had. Again, I haven't even seen this, but maybe slightly like Platoon, which is a little bit more straightforward. It didn't have the vertical cutting. It was a little... It still had some surreal touches, like this movie certainly does. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it was flamboyant in other ways. More so maybe in production design and, like, just its scope. Yeah. Um... Yeah, no, I, I do. I enjoy the film. I should maybe revisit one of the cuts again. I should uh, see the most have... recent cut. Oh, God. How long is that? Is that five hours? When, how recent is it? It's just last year, I think. Last year? What's oh, it called really? again? What's it called? Oh, maybe not last year. Well, uh, I can tell you really fast, like through like a search on Amazon, how. I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's like you, you I, get. In any, in any event, I mean, from what I've seen. Alexander Revisited is the best cut. Okay. It is better than theatrical cut. Oh, yeah, there's Alexander Revisited, the final cut. Then there is... Um, the final, final cut. The, 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 uh, the, the briefcase version. <laughs> what? <laughs> you, ever, you don't remember when Blade Runner came out on DVD, they put it out in like a briefcase that had five different Oh, versions. yes, that one I do remember. Yeah, that. so you have the theatrical cut, the Revisited final cut, which is R-rated... Then you have the ultimate. Then you have the unrated final cut, the Alexander ultimate cut. Oh my! And then, uh, and then Alexander the director's cut from, uh, which is not too soon. So God, it's so confusing. Yeah. I don't know which one to choose. I choose all of them. <laughs> um. All right. So I want to go through like a few more of his movies quickly because, uh, yeah. Um. Now that we get into the period when he just kind of gets good, but not that great anymore. World Trade Center. Yeah, decent. Yeah, it's decent. It's really more about the the firefighters and their families. Yeah, and... it's a it's probably his most well super well intentioned movie that should ha- probably have no controversy at all. Right. Maybe it does somewhere. And it, and it did. It, the problem with it is that it feels like almost too sanitized. It doesn't feel like an Oliver Stone movie. Right. It feels almost like a Hallmark movie at times. A- anybody could have done this. Movie. Although you know who pops up, who Michael Shannon. Huh. He's like a character who, like, because the whole movie Nicolas Cage and this other character are buried under rubble. Michael Shan pops up near the end and saves him. Cool. Yeah. So that's World Trade Center. It's eh. W? I like. I don't love. I like it. It's okay. It feels, you know what's interesting? I mentioned that movie Pinkville. That movie got canceled in early 2008, and he decided immediately, all right, screw it. Let's go do W. I would have waited a little longer to do that. Yeah, I don't know why he decided to do because he actually said in an interview in 2004 around William Alexander, he's like, it's too soon to do a movie about Bush. Yeah, well, why he decided to do it? 
Uh, yeah, no better know. ideas, perhaps. I mean, it's uh, Josh Brolin is quite good in it. Yeah, there are some really good performances, but I feel like I saw it in the theater, and I felt like, well, okay, this isn't giving me anything new about the man. You're just kind of repeating a lot of the main points, including things which are almost brought up in like ridicule, like you know when Bush choked on the pretzel. Yeah. Huh. Um, I remember that. Or selling the baseball team, or you know. Um being at the frat getting drunk now, now maybe if this will have deeper meaning like years later maybe that was the idea but i guess so yeah because i don't think so i right saw now. it uh, recently i think i think showtime had it and i thought yeah the performances are great i love uh is it james cromwell plays the father yeah. also doesn't quite feel like a stone movie in certain spots you know why i think it, it feels like a low budget rushed movie like it was made really quickly like it doesn't, it has, it doesn't have that long nixon epic jfk it's now, to be fair, maybe Bush doesn't, you know, maybe he doesn't warrant that type of treatment. Yeah, maybe you're right. But at the same time, try a little yeah, bit you, better. You don't want to make Nixon with Bush. No. No, no, you don't. Because it's, it's a completely different story. Yeah, very yeah. different story, it, very it, different it men. It feels like rushed. It feels like it was put together real quick. Yeah, and that's why it's, it's, it's not a movie I feel like, oh, I need to revisit W yeah. now, like, because it's just... Yeah. I lived through that. I, I I became a conscious political person during the Bush years. Give me some time, yeah. Oliver. But again, great cast, great ensemble. Yeah. We got Richard Dreyfus and uh, all right. and all the other. I forgot. Oh, yeah. uh, Jeffrey Wright, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I forgot. I don't think we even brought Wall Street. You want to go into Wall Street real quick? Oh, no, I can I can say it. Wall Street's good. Wall Street's ne- money never sleeps, which is quite an ungainly title to me. And it has Eli Wallach. Yes, yes, it does. Eli Wallach. I forgot he was in there. Um, yeah, yeah, he's like part of like this board group or something. Uh, because you know, like Wall Wall Street Two is more about you know it's about the financial collapse, right? Um, and Eli Wallach. Hey, you remember that guy funding. who messed around with Wall Street back in the eighties? He's back. Why don't we get him to work for us? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and then you got uh, uh, Savages. Which I kind of like. It's a guilty pleasure. Have you seen Savages? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie has one of the silliest lines I have ever heard in a movie, which I still joke about with my wife. Because we saw this. Because early in the movie, Blake Lively, she narrates it. It's a movie about Mexican drug cartels and stuff like that. All those Mexicans. Um, Yeah. Yeah, we gotta get rid of, uh, you know, we're gonna have to worry about our taco trucks uh, they, on every corner. They wanna infiltrate the, the, the weed, right? We're gonna get into, into the business, yeah. right? Well, yeah, it's, uh, but anyway, it, there's, like, Blake Lively, she's kind of, like, going out with, like, two, two guys, guys in the movie. Um, John Carter. Who are best friends. One is this guy, Taylor <laughs> Kitsch, who was John Carter. Yep. But when he, when he was a thing for, like, a year or two. And then... Battleship, too. John Carter, Battleship, Savages. One go. of these is not quite like the others. Wow. Who's, um, who's the other guy? I forgot who the other guy. Uh, 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 Quicksilver from uh, Age of Ultron. Oh, Aaron yeah, Carol yeah. Johnson. Yeah, yeah. There's a scene where she's having sex with one of the guys. Okay. And one of these guys, I think, had been in Iraq. So he, so um, he, so she says this line as he, as they're, as they're having sex, and she says, "He gives me orgasms." I give him wargasms. Oh, wow. It's a pun, you see, Andrew? (laughs) 
Bravo, I say. Bravo. <laughs> I have to go back and, and rewatch Savages. You basically gave the best reaction that I could have asked for. It is terrible, but I love it. But again, oh. great cast. You got Benito del Toro, Sama Hayek, John Travolta. Uh, oh, John Travolta in that movie. And, and yeah, Benito del Toro. It's just crazy like always. The ending of that movie, I still don't know what to think about. Because it totally... Me too. It suddenly gives you an ending. And then it's like, no, no let's no, rewind. Let's rewind it. That's not what happened. Almost like... But in a way, it's, it's like, like the better version of Funny Games. Or Domino. Remember Domino when they do the same oh, thing? I'm sorry. I I could go off on Domino another time. All right, but, not oh, now. But you know what Domino I meant. Domino is I meant. like a bad version of an Oliver Stone. Okay, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm sorry. All right. Now yeah. I want to close, though, Apology with... Accepted. Oh, two lot more things to bring up, though. The Untold History of the United States. Oh, yeah, I like that. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Now that... Um, well, take if you ever have a day or two, if you watch Untold History of the United States, it'll either make you very fascinated or very angry. Huh, I think it's on because YouTube. it's basically those Oliver are both St- emotions that I like. Okay, well, it's Oliver Stone, and there's this other historian guy. His name's Peter Selznick. I might be mispronouncing that. I, I apologize, uh, Peter. S name. Yeah, they and they also wrote a book uh, that also is called The Untold History of the United States. I guess the shows. I guess they go together. The sort of premise is. It goes. It traces about seventy years of history of the U.S. as well as with a lot of world powers, and kind of the premises that uh, Henry Wallace, who uh, could have been the vice president uh, in 1944, uh, was kind of locked locked out by Democratic uh, politicians who were really anxious about this guy Henry Wallace is going to bring like all these super progressive leftist ideas into the presidency and we don't want that so let's get Truman in here and you know of course one thing leads to another FDR dies, Truman becomes president Truman drops two atomic bombs on Japan and we enter into the Cold War Right. and it's like kind of like well now that that's happened the, you know don't like one thing that's fascinating about the series I don't know how you feel about this Romney is just the emphasis on how you can't almost you can't overestimate what an impact the dropping of those two atomic bombs did to the world, not just to America but to the world itself. The idea that a country can drop, you know, one bomb after another that levels like hundreds of thousands of people in a single moment, like it literally changed like everything how we com- like basically conceptualize anything. As far as fear of other people, yes, yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to answer that. Um, right, but that, that's such a huge thing. I know, I know. <laughs> but um, but it's it's there's so much to this series that I I can't even get into it right now. But it, it's on Showtime on demand, I think, still. So if you ever want to check it out, it's there. Now to get to the last movie, which is out now, and I happen to catch uh, this uh, weekend, which was Snowden. Did you see it? No. No. So Snowden. I want to see it though. Um, this is referring to Edward Snowden. Uh, Not the character in Catch Twenty Two. Is there a character named Edward Snowden? Maybe not Edward Snowden, but there's a character named Snowden. Oh. You literary nerds, you'll know what I'm talking about. I've seen Catch Twenty Two though. So he's not like the, one of. The, is he one of the side characters? It's not important. All right. Anyway, um, 
this is another good but not great stone movie. Okay. Which, um, and I, they, but what I like though, what I will say, it has some of the best or most creative visual ideas a stone movie's had in a long time. There's a scene in this, there's this one scene in this movie where Edward Snowden has to talk to his mentor, played by uh, this guy Reese Evans, and he, uh, He's appearing in this conference room on like a gigantic screen that's like bigger than this apartment that we're in almost. And Edward Snowden's just kind of standing there looking up at him and Reese Ephens really pissed at Edward Snowden for some things. And Snowden. it's a very well he's not even using that tone, it's very much more quiet. Because he's always Snowden. Maybe. But no, it's but it's very tense and the way that like Stone admits to something and that leads to another moment. It's just like, and then like the way that he leans forward and his whole face fills the screen. It's like, oh my god, you are embodying Big Brother in such a way <laughs> that is so obvious and yet so terrifying. It's like the judges in uh, Krypton when when General Zod guilty, 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 guilty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, a little bit of that. Oh, he's trapped to the parallelogram, heard it going uh, through space. Yeah. Um, once again, it's a it's a story that is framed around like a central event, and it flashes back in time. Uh, if anybody's seen Citizen Four, you'll know what I'm talking about, where Edward Snowden was interviewed by this documentary filmmaker, Laura Poitras, and uh, yeah, it's a good movie. I I still know quite how I feel about some of the way it develops it's pretty it's kind of long even though it's not as long as some of his very long movies um it's like a it's like it's like 135 minutes or something and i i don't know how like i think i would say go see it if you're interested in this topic i mean it is scary how national surveillance is working and how like anybody can see you at any time if you have your laptop open the little camera can be spying on you and you won't even know it it certainly puts you on edge in a kind of paranoid way. And yet this is not, you know, the Robert Richardson era or Stone anymore. This is now he's working with Anthony Dodd Mantle, I think, who's a pretty good cinematographer. Okay. You know, it's now Oliver Stone, the digital age. Ah. Uh, so. Hey, man, even the Palma went digital, right? Yeah. So I guess it's. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I've got, we've kind of blitzed through his filmography again. We've passed a lot of documentaries, a lot of stuff he produced but the, the Fidel Castro one yeah he did a lot of documentaries on Fidel Castro and South American coups and all and, sorts uh, of stuff but I think my impression of Oliver Stone is he's had some lulls in the 21st century I think he maybe with the exception maybe of Alexander to an extent he's lost some of the fire of maybe his 90s or 80s work but he's still an interesting filmmaker that, like, he could still have an edge and maybe pull out one or two more great films. And I think that just for that stretch of work that we've spent so much time talking about here tonight, he should still be remembered and celebrated. Even if you don't agree with his politics, which clearly he, he, he almost will tell you, I, I don't even know if I agree with me some of the time, <laughs> uh, but, but he really has strong points of view but how he expresses them as a filmmaker just right. can't be ignored. Right, like, right. he's not somebody who, like, like a Dinesh D'Souza or something, who does, like, propaganda documentaries about why Hillary Clinton is akin to slavery or something. Oh, wow. That's a thing. Wow. <laughs> no, I right. believe we should invade Persia. 
Again? Is that your final word on Oliver Stone? Yes. That's a good way to end it, Romney. Um, you're right about the visual um, language. Do you think he's a major, still a major filmmaker? Uh, yes and no. Yes, because you and me know film buffs know him, actors know him, and they like to work with him. And when they do, they have great performances. But in terms of uh, backers, that's where he, I think, I think that's why he has a tough time making movies because of the, the ideas he has kind of go very ambitious you know either very political or yeah. historical and we, we just don't have the money for it either a how are we going to pay for all this and b who's going to who, who wants to watch this um what i would like to see is maybe a personal script that he would write mm. kind of like platoon because everything else he's written afterwards were either biopics or uh novels or, or something that they gave to him like natural born killers or savages and adaptation yeah, adaptations. I want to, I want to see something personal. Like, maybe adapt his novel, The Child's Dream, right? Uh, well, that has a lot... Yeah, that, that could be interesting. Although, it's, the last note on that, he actually wrote in that book, like, the character of himself goes to war. Oh, okay. He wrote that before he went to Vietnam. Oh, okay, then. But yeah, I want to see something small, personal, kind of like a Woody Allen movie about where he lives, or small budget, five million, they'll give it to him. You know, he's Oliver Stone. I'm sure he can... He'll pay for it himself, I'm sure. But every, every movie he does, it has to be like ten or twenty. I don't know what Snowden cost, but uh, but yeah, step away from doing a movie about a real person. Yeah. I mean, look at Spike. Or a, an, an issue, yeah. Look well, at Spike. He, He's still getting money from Kickstarter and Netflix and Amazon, and they'll they'll support him. They'll back him up. Well, well, Spike Lee, he's he's always just been weird. I could do a whole thing about him. One that day. should be our next guy. Oh, yeah. God. We'll invite you back the next time uh, when we talk about Spike Lee. Sure. Jungle Fever, man. Malcolm X. <laughs> One more thing. I think Oliver Stone popularized the biopic in the early 90s. Do you agree? Well, the kind of... Well, I mean, the biopic had been around before that. I, I think you mean more like, it's like a, a biopic that's epic in scope. Because like I don't think everybody, Malcolm, everybody I don't think Malcolm X would exist without right. Oliver Stone. Or Cobb, the Ty Cobb movie, or The Babe. Oh, yeah. I... Man, Cobb, you're you're calling back. That that's actually a, that, I saw that movie and it was probably way Tom too Tommy Lee young. Jones again, uh, or the Babe, or yeah. or you know Evita or Shay maybe, or the the Shea Guevara movie. Yeah, mm. I think he popular. I think he made because because when the Doors came out, when JFK came out, everybody came out with a biopic. Well, it's an interesting thing that uh, Ruby. Thing that, the movie a thing Ruby? to close on with this conversation, like. There's a point in the book, and by the way, check out The Oliver Stone Experience by Matt Zoller Seitz. I can't plug this book enough. This is one of the best movie books I've, I've come across in years. I'm going to get it soon. He talks about if he, like, they bring up this idea of a film as like a sermon. If you're a filmmaker, is it bad if you are being like a priest or preaching? And Oliver Stone Joe kind Roski of says... would say no. <laughs> well, Oliver Stone says, I don't, you know, it's not, you know, I don't like bad preachiness. And it kind of called to mind why, like, you know, he, if he is giving a sermon at times of his movies, and Snowden is, an, is a recent example kind of doing that, it's all a matter of how are you really trying to I've maybe advance cinematic technique or language, or are you really being some, someone who's entertaining me and not bogging down your message in right. you know badness like you know something like crash is a sermon but the reason why crash doesn't work is because it's so his head's so up its ass um hey man, best picture oh four 
Well, <laughs> I agree. Driving Miss Daisy, best picture, nineteen eighty nine. I'm being sarcastic. I, I, I know. I, know, I didn't I like Crash. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that he spent his career giving a lot of sermons, and he almost doesn't apologize for it. Like right. in the book, like he's just like I just do this. You know, it's a way to tell stories. And you know, even Alexander, to an extent, could be kind of like a sermon about like heroism and mythology and certain things. Mm. But how it's expressed really counts. Yeah. And if people will buy it. Once in a while, there's a good mixture of both. Yeah. Maybe Spielberg can get away with it. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, well, he can because he has the money for sure. Right. Um, so with this said, I want to thank you all for listening to this very epic length director's cut Oliver Stone podcast. Wait for the next cut, which will come out in about three weeks. <laughs> yes. Um, and I want to thank again Romney uh, for coming to uh, guest star this. You, uh, nope. you did a great job. So nope. thank you again for giving us some great film history and uh, context and all that. Um, and until next time, I'm Jack. I'm Andrew. And remember, the wage of cinema is. <laughs> death yeah now on your way out you'll be able to visit and have your picture taken with oscar one of our highly coveted pals so come and enjoy the distortion of reality